Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Today, there's a number of things I think we need to discuss. Top of the pile has got to be the UK autumn statement yesterday. Jeremy Hunt's first attempt to try and undo some of the damage that um, his predecessor, Quasi Quartang, inflicted on the UK economy and its financial markets a couple of months ago. Uh, We got the latest data on Irish house prices. And I also see today that the ESRI has published a monthly nowcast, which is basically a monthly analysis of some key economic indicators. There's, I think, a a decent enough story to talk about there. The mess that is Twitter continues to evolve in pretty dramatic ways. And a lot of Twitter offices around the world are now closed until Monday. So interesting to discuss um, your perspective, particularly on what's going on there. Cryptocurrency has really hit the headlines over the last few days with the FTX story. And the new CEO has gone in who had a previous examination of Enron back in the day, who has basically said that what he's seen in FTX at this juncture is much worse than what he'd seen at Enron back in the day. That is pretty dramatic stuff. And um, given all the conversations we've had about crypto and Bitcoin over the last couple of years, and given the blowback we've got from the evangelists, evangelists even, interesting to um, observe and discuss what's going on there. The World Cup starts on Sunday. Uh, personally, I'm really excited at the prospect, um, and I will follow it as much as I possibly can religiously. Unfortunately, I do have to work as well, so it won't be possible to get the games in, but I will watch as much of it as I possibly can, because notwithstanding all of the stuff that's been going going on about Qatar and so on, and you know, I fundamentally think that giving the World Cup to Qatar was an absolute sham. Um, The notion of moving the World Cup 
into December and November is a sham. Um, but it's happening. And um, I guess as football fans, um, I have as a football fan, I have two choices. I'll watch it or I won't. And actually, I will choose to watch it. And I'm getting more and more excited about it. And um, personally, I'd love to see the Dutch win it. But there you are. Um, and finally, um, you have a quirky suggestion about rats in New York and pizza and so on. So I'll be really curious in 35 minutes or so to hear what you've got to say about rats in New York. So, Chris, starting off with the UK autumn statement, before I give you my perspective, I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, there's uh, so much that one could say, and I'm going to try and keep it as brief as I can, because I know I've had a big rant about this on at least one occasion in did, Chris, podcasts. Yeah. Uh, forgive me uh, for repetition, but I do think it, it is of such monumental significance for anybody that lives in the UK and indeed anybody that considers themselves to be a friend of the UK or connected to the UK in some way or other, as indeed many of our Irish listeners actually are. My first general remark would be, I think that people have got very short memories. An interesting statistic is that every Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer, that's the UK Finance Minister, since 2010, which is when they first came to power in their most recent guise, they've been in for 12 years now, every single one of them, after delivering a budget, has had to come back to Parliament, to the House of Commons, to reverse at least one of his measures. Now, that statistic alone should tell you that these people do not know what they're doing if they have to do a U-turn every single time they announce a policy initiative such as... Chris, we've had a lot of that in this country over the years as well. I'm not saying that you're immune from it, but it's particularly acute here would be my assertion. And of course, Jim, you know that this is the biggest reversal of the lot. If they've all had to come back, this one essentially took the quasi-quateng Liz Trust budget of only a few short weeks ago and either dropped all the measures that they were doing or took the measures that they were doing and reversed them, changed the sign, if you like. Something that went up, went down. Something that was abolished, was increased, and so on and so forth. In many ways, I think that this was a centre-left budget in terms of the overall direction that it took us in. It could even be described as a Labour Party budget. Because overall, what he did was... Despite all of the preamble, all of the leaks, all of the media management that said that this was going to be eye-wateringly tough with both expenditure cuts, government spending cuts, and big tax rises, is that all of those spending cuts were delayed until after the next election. Public expenditure in the UK over the next two years, as a result of what he did yesterday, is actually going to go up a bit. And all of these really, really big, big, tough expenditure cuts are going to come after the election. But tell me, Chris, can I stop you there? Last week we were discussing the UK fiscal situation and you were going on about how inappropriate such fiscal tightening is in the current environment, given that the UK economy is now technically in recession. And in fact, in 2023, there's going to be, and indeed 2024, there's going to be a modest fiscal expansion. Surely that's appropriate. Well, it's a modest expansion of spending. I don't know about the overall fiscal stance because there have been tax rises as well um, buried within it. Well, what what I've figured is that there will be a modest fiscal loosening of 3.8 billion in 22-23 
and 0.3 billion in 23-24. So all of the pain, all of the fiscal austerity is from 24 onwards. It, so, is, it is backloaded. I think if you yes. were to do the old-fashioned thing, and I'm sorry to be technical about it for a second, and cyclically adjust the fiscal stance. Do you remember in the old yes. days, we used to do all cyclically adjusted budget deficits to try and answer that question, what is the fiscal stance? I think if you were to do that old-fashioned stuff and say, okay, if they just let the automatic stabilizers work, what would have happened? What's happening now? I think you still see that it would be something of a tightening because, first of all, they've reduced the threshold at which you pay the higher rate, 45% tax in the UK, and that will bring in a lot of new payers of the higher rate tax. So that that's a in and of itself a bit of a tightening. They've announced a big program of increases in capital taxes, which ordinary people won't shed a tear over because most ordinary people don't have capital gains to pay taxes on. But unlike Ireland, the UK has a very generous capital gains tax allowance of 11 or 12,000 pounds a year, something like that. And that's being brought right down over the next few years. So that's another tax increase. Real disposable incomes are going to be hit by a number of things, inflation being the first one. But the uh, famous energy cap, the thing that Liz Truss said that she was going to extend for two further years, has only been extended for one year, is going up. Right now in the UK, the average household is expected to pay about £2,500 for their energy bills. That's an average. There will be a wide variety of actual outcomes around that average, uh, that's going up to £3,000. So give or take, depending on the exchange rate, the average UK household from next April will pay about €3,500, give or take, it's about €300 a month for their bills through the summer and winter on average. And that's a big increase. What all of that adds up to, according to the Office for Budget Responsibility, is real disposable incomes in the UK will fall 4.3% this year and 2.8% next year. That's the biggest two-year drop since records began for this measure but, in the but 1950s. Chris, that, that's not all on the back of the budget. I mean, that's, no, no, no. that's due to the cost of living. It's due to rising interest rates. I, and so I, on. I began my remarks by saying it's, it's inflation is the biggest hit to real disposable incomes. But there are other things as well to do with things like people paying higher energy bills, higher interest costs as well. The energy the increase in household energy bills is the direct consequence of the of the budget, but not all of the fall in real disposable income is down to the budget. Part of the fall in real disposable incomes is going to come through higher unemployment and thing, things like that. So the Office for Budget Responsibility chairperson has said that the last eight years of real disposable income that we've had in the UK, such as we've had in the UK, has been wiped out. Will be It's gone. GDP, the size of the economy, will not be back to pre-pandemic levels. It will still be lower in terms of economic activity at the end of 2024. And that's extraordinary. GDP is forecast to fall uh, 1.4% next year in 2023 and uh, rise a measly uh, 1.3% in the year after. We're going to lose, according to the OBR, half a million jobs. Uh, One of the interesting things about the current macabre things about the current state of the UK economy is that we are in recession. The Chancellor began his statement yesterday by stating very simply, we are in recession now. 
He normally begins uh, his budget speeches with an upbeat remark. He couldn't have been more different to previous chancellors. And so we have a very tight labour market at a time when the economy is in recession. We're short of workers in the UK, just like you are in Ireland and in other countries. It's a really peculiar thing about the the current state of the labour market. So it was grim. Martin Wolf of the FT, the FT's leading economics commentator, said that it was a budget of no jam today and no jam tomorrow, which I think is a very eloquent way, if somewhat simplistic way of putting it. Hunt blamed, of course, global headwinds for all of the problems, for all of the things that he was able to do, not able to do yesterday, and, and for all of these falls in real disposable income over the next couple of years. But I'll repeat, the UK is the only G7 economy not to be back to pre-pandemic GDP size now, and it still isn't going to be there in two years' time. The the investment, corporate investment, private sector investment, uh, if you look at the OBR forecast, it's a disaster area. And that's future growth. That's future growth not happening, because that's what investment is for. It it is to generate future economic growth. That's one of, I think, the real almost hidden disaster zones for this Uh, economic vista that we have here in the UK. Property prices, the OBR explicitly forecasts property prices these days, and they are going to fall steadily over the next two years. For me, there's lots of horror stories within all of those numbers, and and I could talk about them a lot more. But for me, the big issue is where's the growth strategy? Because the only thing that rescues the UK economy from all of this is growth. And we talked last time, Jim, about the contrast between the UK and Ireland. And the more I think about that, the more astonished and the more remarkable I think that contrast between Ireland and the UK is. And I think it's worth repeating that the gap between the situation that Ireland finds itself in now and the situation the UK is in is extraordinarily wide. And it's something that I think most people, certainly me, I wasn't aware of just how big that gap has grown and how different the economic situations um, of those two countries actually are. It's, it's a big reversal of many decades of economic history. It's huge. It's enormous. And I think it really deserves much more attention. It's a result of many, many years of, of all sorts of different things happening, different economic policy choices. There's luck involved in any path for the economy. But the best way I can describe it is a chart I saw yesterday. I tweeted it, actually, which has, I think, 27 or 28 European economies and compares the forecast for next year, 2023, due to start in about six weeks time from the official budget watchdog yesterday. The UK is there on the left hand side of this bar chart of 28 European countries, minus 1.4 percent. It's on the left because it is the worst. And there are a couple of other countries that are also forecast to be negative, but nowhere near as negative, taking European Commission forecasts. Germany, Sweden and Latvia are all negative next year. Denmark is forecast to be flat. Every other economy in Europe has modest growth uh, next year. These are forecasts. Take them with a pinch of salt. But this is the current state of play. Guess which country is on the right hand side, the absolute right hand side, showing plus 3% 3% plus growth for 2023. You know it's, what? It's Ireland, of course. Yeah. And um, people will come in and say, well, GDP is a gross exaggeration of Irish growth, which it is. But even if you look at GNI star or modified domestic demand, whichever you want to look at, 
we're still looking like one of the more positive economies in the world in 2023. Can I just stop you there? Because yeah. one of the, the way I want to summarize all this without going on about it for too much for too long, I'm going to put my hand up and admit something. I did something yesterday that I've never done before. I wrote a letter to the editor of the Financial Times in high dudgeon. And I'm going to, they won't publish it, not, not from an oik like me, but I'll read it out to you. Three points, Mr. Editor of the Financial Times, about economic growth. First, the UK won't have any growth until it becomes institutionally capable of making pro-growth policy choices. The sort of choices Irelanders make, actually. In the short term, that means embracing immigration for an economy that unusually is extremely short of workers while experiencing a recession. Reform of the planning process is also essential. If you can't build houses or wind farms, the economy is unnecessarily held back and it won't meet its environmental goals. Second, policy has to embrace complexity. Join the dots. The FTSE 100 index of share prices is stuck at levels first seen in the last century. That's a phenomenon not unconnected with the fact that hundreds of billions of pounds have been diverted for decades from equity investment that's investment in real productive assets towards gilts, government bonds. It turns out via that debacle in government bonds and pensions last month that the diversion into leverage bets on government bonds um, has been accompanied by investment flowing out of real economic productive assets. And then we complain about an economy chronically short of investment in real productive assets. And then we go on to give in to insurer lobbying. The same firms that have bought those bonds, sold those equities, provided those LDI solutions so that they can gain favourably changed solvency regulations. Third, the reality of Brexit's terms of trade shock will not be dealt with to the extent that they can be until Brexit ceases to be the great taboo of British politics. Both main parties allow economic fantasists to flourish by their own failure to even acknowledge basic truths yours, etc. So that's that's what I think. I think that at the heart of this, there is a huge hole, which is where is the economic growth in the UK going to come from? They don't pursue policies that are pro-growth. They actually pursue policies that are counter to economic growth. So I think that is we have a real, real problem, as regular listeners to this podcast will know. So I should probably shut up there and, and let you tell me what you think. Yeah, Chris, I'll just make a couple of points. The Bank of England um, published research this week um, suggesting, and this was on the back of the 11.1% inflation rate in October, which was the highest in over 40 years. Bank of England suggested that Brexit has added 6% to the price of food in the UK. Okay, And secondly, it said that British workers have taken a 2% cut in real terms to their wage due to the UK leaving the European Union. This Brexit mess, you know, you, we, we've spoken about it so much, won't go on again about it. But um, when you think about what Jeremy Hunt said in the media last weekend about Brexit, um, it just shows the bullshit um, that's still being spoken about in that country. And I totally agree with the sentiment that letter about the failure to um, face up to the debacle that is Brexit. But I was looking at the details of the budget yesterday um, and I was going to ask you a question. Well, what would you suggest they do? And I think you've answered it in that letter that you read out. All of the fiscal tightening is basically 2024 onwards, or at least the bulk of it. OK, and 2024 is the next general election. Um, I assume the likelihood is that that fiscal tightening will never see the light of day. 
Well, if, you, if you think that spending is going to be cut in the way that this budget yesterday said it was going to be post-2024, yeah. I've got some very cheap natural gas to sell you. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you've heard of a politician famously went on I'm a celebrity get me out of here not Matt Hancock who's currently there at the moment a woman called Nadine Doris you've mm. probably heard of her she once oh, described yeah. David Cameron and George Osborne who were the people who did austerity 1.0 yesterday we got austerity 2.0 she described Cameron and Osborne as two posh boys who don't know the price of milk and I'd say two things, three things about that. One is there's not a lot of, of things that Nadine Dory says that I agree with, but she was absolutely right then. George Osborne was one of those chances that did come back to the House of Commons to reverse previous measures that he took in budgets. In fact, he presided over something in 2012 called an omni shambles of a budget. That's what that one has become known as. And he's advising Jeremy Hunt. He's back as an advisor on fiscal policy. This complete looper. Posh boys who don't know the price of milk, I'll just leave this out there. I won't make any comment about it. I'll just tell you one fact. Jeremy Hunt is reckoned to be worth £14 million sterling, and Rishi Sunak is reckoned to be worth £730 million sterling. So posh boys who don't know the price of milk, is that the fundamental problem facing the UK economy now and in the past? But let's move on, Jim. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, can we move on to some Irish data? Uh, yesterday, we got house price data for September. Uh, national average house price inflation has decelerated from 11.9% to 10.8% um, in September. And that peaked at 15.1% in February. So there is a significant deceleration in the rate of house price inflation happening, um, which is something I think that logically should be happening um, and I hope it speeds up. In Dublin, the annual rate of increase has declined from 9.8 to 9.4. Back in February, that was running at 13.2%. And outside of Dublin, the annual rate has fallen from 13.5% to 11.9%. That was running at 17.1% back in March. So clearly, the cost of living pressures, rising interest rates, economic uncertainty, are impacting on house price inflation. I still think national average house price growth of 10.8% is totally and utterly excessive, but at least it is moving in the right direction. And based on you know the analysis of the UK economy given by the OBR, given the prognosis that the European Commission has given for the European Union, and given what you know the official forecast for the US economy, you know, you'd have to think that. Um, the Irish housing market is going to slow significantly over the next 12 months. 
logically that has to happen but of course logic isn't always um, at play in this context uh, the ESRI has um, started publishing what they called a nowcast which is basically an assessment of many aspects of the Irish economy on a monthly basis and um, basically modified domestic demand, which is stripping out from GDP, the intellectual property distortions, aircraft leasing, the effects of globalization as it describes them. So modified domestic demand um, is projected to have slowed to 2.1, sorry, 2.2% in September. That does represent a significant slowdown. But in the third quarter of the year, they say in the release, it's the third quarter of 2023. That's a typo. It's obviously 2022. But they're looking at modified domestic demand growing by 4.1% year on year. So despite the slowdown in September, it was a good quarter for the Irish economy. And that's reflected in tax revenues. It is reflected in what's happening in the labour market. But it is still important to point out that there is a slowdown happening in parts of the economy. And I think the real reason for the significant slowdown in modified domestic demand in September is the fact that the volume of retail sales fell by 7% year on year in September. So naturally, and no surprise, there is a slowdown starting to come through in the Irish economy. But relative to the United Kingdom in particular, um, it does look like nirvana at the moment. The... Mess that is Twitter. I don't know what to say about that, Jim, other than yeah. to really observe that it's happening and to note that for, I, I'm not a huge biggest fan of Elon Musk, but I do think that he, this is a businessman who has taken over a company that has doesn't have enough revenues. Its business model that relies solely on advertising is clearly lacking in terms of overall corporate profitability, and he's decided to try and do something about it. And this, I think, is going to go one of two ways, um, at least, which is that he will introduce subscriptions so that people like us are going to be asked to pay for our usage of Twitter. And uh, for anybody interested, please follow us on Twitter <laughs> for as long as it lasts. Or it, it doesn't last. And gosh, for the sake of everybody who works there, I, I certainly hope that's not the case. I am a user to it. I regard it as a fantastic information source. And I've said many times on this podcast that it's, it's a two-edged sword. It, it's both a sewer and a fantastic source of information. So I have very mixed feelings about it. And given the extent to which I do find it useful, I think ultimately I won't mind paying a little bit for it. But I think that's where he's going. And one of the things that's happened to social media companies in the past is that when suggestions of paying for your social media have arisen, the users say no. Uh, if you're, you, I'd remember when WhatsApp first appeared, there were suggestions that we were going to be asked to pay for WhatsApp. They have disappeared because I think firms find it very difficult nowadays to make us pay for anything that we've got used to being free. You can never take a toy off a child, even if the child isn't actually using the toy. That That's human nature. So I think it's very sad, um, but obviously there are big change, changes coming to Twitter, both for the workers and for the users. Qatar, Jim, I, I feel a bit differently to you. I, I'm, I'm probably not as interested in football as you are, which explains one of it, but I do think that the whole thing is, is a debacle. The numbers for what they have done in Qatar are extraordinary. They've spent over the last 10 years since 10 years or so since they first got the World Cup 
over $300 billion in infrastructure spending. Um, $36 billion on a brand new, never existed before Metro. Dublin, eat your heart out. Um, extraordinary stuff. There's eight new stadiums, um, lots of new highways. One of the things that doesn't seem to have been built to anything near the standard of those things is accommodation. And people are essentially being asked, visitors are being asked, some of them anyway, to stay in uh, not very well air-conditioned porter cabins. Accommodation does appear to be a huge issue to the point where lots of fans are actually going to be attending from their bases in places like Dubai. There are now 50 flights a day from Dubai to Doha carrying fans, apparently. Big question marks about whether all of that infrastructure is going to be used after the World Cup. Is it all a big white elephant? And of course, the tragedy of all the people that died building all those stadia and the controversy over 90% of those workers being underpaid immigrants. Uh, the alleged corruption over the decision to give it to them is the thing I think probably one of the things that bothers me the most. The human rights abuses, of course, is the other. And they come in many and varied forms. But this is an allegation which appeared on social media. I've no idea whether it's true or not, but it wasn't just the allegations are not just about the Qataris bribing FIFA officials with brown envelopes. Uh, I've seen a suggestion that the French delegation or the French people, part of FIFA, who voted for Doe, were told by the then French president, who I think was Sarkozy, but I can't remember. And again, I stress this as an unproven allegation. They were told to vote for Qatar. And then by sheer coincidence, in the next few weeks and months, an awful lot of French, I think, military kit was ordered um, from from Qatar. So all sorts of allegations unproven flying around. So it, it, it just stinks the, from the human rights through to the financial corruption. It just, to me, has the whiff of something very dodgy at best about it. And I must say, it, I wouldn't be as interested as you are, but I probably that little bit of interest has gone. And uh, I'm surprised that a million people are flying in to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I 100% accept everything you're saying. And I, I said in my intro piece there that I believe it was a huge mistake to bring the World Cup to Qatar. And the reasons for it, um, I think we know, even though they're not fully proven yet, but we know what the reasons are. Um, I would not have gone to that World Cup in a million years, even if Ireland had qualified. Uh, God help us. Um, there's no way I'd have traveled. And in fact, I have zero interest in traveling to that part of the world because how I just would have no interest in visiting or being involved in such a repressive regime like that. And we, we have the latest debacle today about um, alcohol sales in around the stadiums has been uh, banned. Beer yeah, has uh, been banned. I mean, that, 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 would keep, that would certainly keep me away. Well, yeah, I mean, alcohol sales have been banned and OK, different people with different views on that. Um, you know, there there is a view that actually alcohol fuels a lot of the um, trouble that happens in stadia, particularly from the English fans. Um, Not at rugby they, matches, mate. Pardon? Not at rugby matches. This is a football thing. I'm talking about football. Absolutely. I know what I'm saying, but al- you, you can't blame alcohol completely when you see you know, so much one, alcohol, one alcohol less, being drunk. One less game I ever went to, Chris, in the Aviva. Um, in fact, I think it was the only rugby match I was ever at, apart from a few Munster games um, in Cardiff. People standing up every second to allow people in with yeah, their... That's what I'm saying. There's huge, copious amounts of alcohol. Yeah. Too much. It gets in the way, way of the, the enjoyment of, all, of proper yeah. rugby fans. Really Absolutely. 100%, 100% agree. Up. But they don't and then start taking lumps out of each other. 
Uh, no, no, they don't. But the, the the point I'm making is that you you can you can argue forever whether alcohol should or shouldn't be sold in these football stadia during the World Cup. But the fact they turn around and announce it two days before the World Cup starts is absolutely bizarre. And it just shows who's running this World Cup. It's not FIFA. It's Qatar. It's the Qatari government. And I'd, I'd have huge problems with all of that. Absolutely. Um, but I look at the footballers out on the pitch and I want to watch them. Um, okay. you know, it's... Can I tell you a great suggestion? Because the uh, players have all been encouraged to promote LGBTQ plus rights, quite rightly so. And aeroplanes have been flown in uh, carrying the players wearing rainbow colours and they're wearing badges and armbands declaring their support. And verbally, the England team at least has been very voluble in terms of its uh, support for various minority rights. And one columnist, I think it was in the London Times, suggested the biggest gesture that the England team could make in this particular regard would be that uh, whether or not they're going to take the knee, I'm not quite sure whether that's going to happen in in Qatar, but after taking the knee, perhaps, the biggest single thing that they could do to impress upon their Qatari hosts, hosts what they think of their stance on gender rights is to give each other a little kiss. Um, Bitcoin, crypto. Yeah. Um, well, as you know, Jim, you and I have talked about this many times. It is one of the areas that we agree on that Nouriel Rabini famously described the whole space as shitcoin and it has been behaving like that the the ftx is it fxt or ftx i can't remember debacle uh, it looks like an awful lot of money many many billions have gone missing and there are now allegations that it's gone missing in the worst possible way not just through financial lackadaisical processes but it's actually fraud how easily fools are parted from their money it just goes to show, doesn't it? So um, we, we, we've always been sceptics. We think this just merely reinforces our scepticism. I don't think crypto is going to die as a result, but it's certainly, as a, in, when you add up all the value of the various coins and tokens that are out there, it's a lot smaller than it used to be. Bitcoin is now down at about $16,000. It was at, in the $60,000. So it's down an awful lot. A lot of people have lost a lot of money. I, I hope that a lot of people have lost a lot of faith in in these things. A lot of people are saying that it's still the underlying technology, the blockchain technology is the thing that will uh, help people in the future. But even there, I have my doubts. I think it's actually quite clunky technology and that payments and financial transactions, uh, alternative uh, ways of doing it, fintech, um, will not involve it going forward. That's my guess. It's my belief. It's unchanged in all of this i think it's very sad if it if it has been fraud i i hope the authorities track that down but it strikes me that it, we've got a combination of quasi enron quasi bernie madoff going on here and that's certainly the reading that i've the i've taken from what i have seen mm. um, good luck untangling it would be all i would say mm, absolutely Jim, Chris, have you have, you, have yeah. you seen the videos of the pizza rat no, I have not. I was just about to ask you. There's the, it's gone viral. You, you, you have way too much time in your hands. I'm I do. really busy. I do. I don't have any, I don't work for a living, you see. Um, I just, just watch YouTube videos. This rat walking down the steps of a New York subway station uh, with a large slice of pizza in its mouth has uh, attracted an awful lot of attention. And attention not least from the mayor of New York, a chap called Eric Adams, 
who apparently has been christened the Verminator. Because he's given a press conference in which he has uh, pledged to rid New York City of its rat problem. And all I can say is good luck. This, it's a city of 8 million people. Somebody, I don't think it's Eric Adams, but somebody has counted the rats. There are apparently 2 million of them. It's a serious attempt to deal with it. They have committed to collecting rubbish within four hours of it being put outside. It used to be 14 hours. Um, they've got this thing called curbside composting, which is an attempt to keep the rats away from rubbish just being dumped. They're tightening up the regulations on dumping. And God bless them, they've employed management consultants to come in and help them eliminate the rats. Now, I could tell all sorts of jokes about management consultants and rats. But given that some of my friends work for management consultancies, I probably should stop there, Jim. Interesting. I remember my first time in New York was 1981. I did the New York Marathon. Sorry, it was 82. Beg your pardon. I did the New York Marathon in 1982. And I remember going over there as a young fella on my own and hanging around New York for four or five days. And at that stage, you know, there was a lot of warnings about your personal safety you know, it was a dangerous enough city at that stage. And then due to a combination of Giuliani and Mario Cuomo over the years, they really, and this zero tolerance approach to crime, they really addressed that problem and made New York a pretty safe city to visit and to walk around. Um, unfortunately, Giuliani's whole reputation has been subsequently destroyed by his behavior in relation to Trump and all of that. But back in the day, actually, um, they sorted out a problem with a different type of rat. So let's hope they succeed this time around. Chris, do have a great weekend. Uh, great to talk again. As always, you have a great weekend too. Yeah, and I, and I suppose we should, we should mention that um, our next pod will be with a guest. Yes, absolutely. Um, next week, we will be doing a, a, a pod with Chris Gray. We've met that guy before on the podcast. He is an eminent commentator, blogger, writer, broadcaster here in the UK on all things Brexit. I call him the doyen of Brexit podcasting. And we've got an exciting schedule, I hope, over the next few weeks, not every week, but of guests coming onto the pod. We've had them on before. We're going to try and accelerate that a little bit, grow that side of the pod a bit with more more voices, uh, different points of view, hopefully. And in, in that regard, if any expert on any of the areas that we touch on ever feels uh, that they would could add something to this podcast, please feel free to get in touch. So cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.